0: Amen. Good morning church. It's good to be with you. Uh, I haven't met you yet and I saw some new faces this morning. Uh, I'm glad you're here. My name is Justin. I'm one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And uh, we've been starting to walk through the gospel of John together. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, have them open. Uh, We want people engaged in the word together. So we're not going to have the verses on the screen. but invite you to follow along. So John uh, chapter 2. I'll never forget the first time that I held it. Christmas wrapping paper was on the floor and I lifted it out of its little white box, the iPod Touch. I had never seen anything so beautiful in my life. I hadn't met Jill yet, so the possibilities were endless. Right, this is 2008 was the year, and I hadn't owned an iPhone yet. That wasn't really a thing quite yet, and so I was comparing the Touch to my previous flip phones and that iPod. Remember the original iPod with a little rotating circle clicky thing, and the screen was about this big. This was a whole new world, and I did not dare close my eyes. Uh, so I, I had apps for the first time in my life. And and so uh, you, if you remember you remember Steve Jobs he would always come out and w- oh, oh, the first thing sorry the first thing I did was I downloaded a game called Wood Block Classic anybody remember this game uh, I had a whole new world at my fingertips and what I decided to do was basically play Tetris right? something I could have done for the pl- previous thirty years on my Game Boy but this one made a cool knocking sound with wood. Uh, do you remember uh, Steve Jobs, every year, he would unveil the kind of the newest i thing, whatever it was, a pad or a pod, and he would have hints and teases of, of, of what was to come and how it would be the best thing that you would ever imagine, not just new, not just better, but, but new, right? It was completely uh, going to change your life forever. He was a modest man, right? We, we're always looking for the newest and, and best thing, the thing that's going to make our life happier, more efficient, more profitable, more powerful, more, more fun, and we've got them, right? We've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. We've got who's-its and what's-its, yeah, you, you know it, and yet has a single gadget or gizmo ever been the final key to our happiness? Of course not. And as jacked as I was to get the iPod touch, where is it now? I have no idea. It's probably out on one of those giant trash islands in the middle of the ocean. That there is something fundamentally broken within us and in our world is evidenced in part by our endless search for the next and the newest. But what we require for true and lasting wholeness and joy goes far beyond an iPod Touch or whatever next gadget it is on the horizon or, or being placed into a new tax bracket or finally getting that new car or finally being a part of a non-dysfunctional family as if that exists or, fi- or, or moving to a new location where it doesn't rain every, all summer long, right? We've been walking through the Gospel of John. and In our next story this morning, we find the new breaking into the old. And this is the first of seven signs we're going to see from from, uh, Jesus in John's gospel here in the first half uh, of, of his gospel. And he speaks to what it is in this world and in each of us that needs to be made new. And how Jesus alone, the word made flesh alone, is the solution to that problem. We sang it last week. Is all creation groaning? It is. It is the new creation coming. It is. We want to hear of those whispers in this story right now. So John chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, two things that are made new. The first one is a new relationship, a new relationship. Let's start looking here in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' his mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Now, notice here, four words in. It says, on the third day. That begs us the question, what? On the third day of what? What is the reference here? Third day, in what regard? Well, John has taken um, very, uh, uh, he, he has really tried to walk us through the first week of Jesus' ministry. And so in this, he's been very intentional to say, and then the next day, and then the next day this happened. And so this in particular was three days after what we saw at the end of chapter one last week, his conversation with Nathaniel and Philip. But you also wonder if part of this on the third day could be looking forward to some, the, the greatest event in human history that happened on the third day. Also, uh, if you're a 90s baby like me, it makes you think of one of the greatest Christian rock bands of all time. Hallelujah. Remember, John began his gospel by saying um, that the light of a new creation was breaking in to our darkness and death. And if you remember, the original first week of creation back in Genesis, what did it climax with? It climaxed with a wedding between Adam and Eve. And here we see in the first week of Jesus' ministry, it climaxes once again with a wedding. And just like that marriage between Adam and Eve was the light that would, that would, that would, start, the, would, would start a spark it would flame into Jesus, God's original mandate of creation, which was to do what? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. You're my image bearers, and I want you to fill the earth with human beings that image me, that reflect the light of my glory. And here we see at the end of Jesus' first week of ministry: new creation life breaking into death, and new wine being brought to a new and better wedding, where Jesus is going to start this work of relighting that flame as he sends disciples out to the ends of the earth so that we could bear the name of God once again. We find here Jesus first is establishing a new relationship with his earthly mother, Mary. His earthly mother, Mary. Look at me uh, with me in verse 3. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. Now, the wine ran out, it says. Wedding feasts in that day would often last up to seven days. The Jewish people knew how to partake. And it was an honor and shame culture. And so to run out of wine for the guests, it would bring shame to the groom and his family. They were the ones that were were writing the check for this bad boy. Now, these people... They, they, they could get, it actually, there were times when the bride's family would get so ticked off if they ran out of wine that they would sue the groom and his family. You thought your wedding had drama, right? They took it seriously. Wine one, one, we have an emergency women were often involved in the preparation of of the the food, and so it's likely that Mary would have been helping with this and would have known before Jesus that the wine was running low. So she comes up to Jesus, and she says, they don't have wine. Now, this could feel like a passive-aggressive approach to Jesus, right? Maybe even some manipulation there. Hey, Jesus, they're out of wine, creator of the universe, right? Now, this is going to say in verse 11 that this is the first of the signs that Jesus had performed. So at this point, most likely, he hasn't done a miracle. So we don't know if, if what she's expecting Jesus to do, but she knows he can, and, and he, can, he could do something. At this point, most likely, Joseph, Mary's husband, is, has died. Uh, we don't hear any account of him in all four Gospels in the adult life of Jesus, so we have good reason to believe um, that he is no longer here. And so because of that, culturally, she'd be leaning on the firstborn of the family to, to, for direction and, and for protection provision. Not a bad person to lean on. I know that my default is often when somebody doesn't know, I just say, "Call my mom. She'll know what to do, right? Something breaks down at my house. call Danny. He'll know what to do. He knows, way better than I do. I stay in my lane. She goes, "I think Jesus will know what to do." Verse four. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman, Jesus asks. Ooh, this is getting spicy. Now, woman in the day, our day, that's a good way to get slapped. Go ahead and try that with somebody next to you, right? See how that goes. But in the day, probably a better equivalent for us would be ma'am, this was not disrespectful in the date calling someone woman but nor was it overtly endearing or warm and certainly was not the kind of language that a mother or that a son would use to uh, their mother and not only that but what does he say what does this have to do with me what concern this was a, a phrase to distance himself what does this have to do with me why would this be my concern and again he wasn't being rude necessarily but he was being abrupt And most likely, this is at least a measured rebuke toward his mom. And notice his explanation. What does this have to do with me, Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. And we'll see throughout this gospel, the hour is specifically a reference to his death and exaltation as the Messiah and Lord, Lord of all. Mary here, she just wants to avoid the embarrassment uh, at at the wedding party for the groom and his family, right? But Jesus sees the bigger picture. That likely, Jesus here, as he's launching his public ministry, is gently clarifying a complicated relationship between his earthly mother as her son, but then also he is the son of God, her Lord and Savior and King. If Jesus and Mary are friends on Facebook, it's complicated, right? It seems like at the beginning of his public ministry, one of the things Jesus is doing here is declaring himself free from any other human's will or manipulation. That, that it's only his father's will. He's going to say this in chapter 5. He said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, my true north is, will always and only be what my father wills for me, even if it means death. For myself and, and this is the good news that that he wasn't and couldn't be manipulated by anybody else his own mother or any other man or woman unlike us Jesus isn't driven by the fear of man Jesus isn't setting up an Instagram poll for everybody what do you guys think I should do next feeding or healing he, he's not putting wine out in hopes that everybody will be impressed with him and like him vote for him to be savior of the world and I, th- what good news. I'm so glad that Jesus isn't taking his marching orders from somebody else, namely me. I would make a terrible counselor or boss for Jesus. Th- that, that we would find what good news here that he only takes his orders from the all-wise, all-good Father and him alone. That he's not pulling the audience out of fear. Even family ties were subordinate to his divine, divine mission. That Mary doesn't get an inside power play because she gets to pull the mom card. But Mary, like every other human, she has to, she has to come to him as the Messiah. He, he cares for his mother. And we're going to see, he even when he's on the cross, he makes sure that John is there to take care of his own mother. And she does play a unique role in his life. He's going to live out, honor thy father and mother. But Mary's going to find that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and that she must come to him ultimately like all of us must come to him. Not a wink, wink, I'm your mom, don't I have an inside access? What a difficult lesson this would be to learn for the one who changed his swaddling diapers. And it can be a difficult lesson for us as well. Verse 5 continues on here. Do whatever he tells you to do, his mother told the servants. So I, I hear in this, he's a good boy, right? I know he'll help somehow. She still is his mom, right? And I, but I see, I see a, a transition here in verse three, where she approaches him as, with, as mom, but with a gentle pushback from Jesus. She now, I think, is approaching him as a persevering believer. She was told 30 years ago by an angel, this one is going to come and save the world. And so now I hear in in Mary exhibiting faith, I know my son. I know who God has declared him to be, and he will do what needs to be done. Listen to him. Jesus is establishing a new relationship with his earthly mom. But in this, we hear the echoes of the new relationship that he had come to establish between God and all of humanity. A relationship that only could exist in any kind of healthy form and reconciled form through Jesus himself. We see there is, there is no inside track offered here. No family and friends discount that he's going to indict the Pharisees later on for, uh, for claiming that we're good because we come from Abraham and his loins. And my dad is a believer in Jesus, and, and he was a pastor for many years, and I've gotten a lot of things from him, like his hair, right? And hopefully not those glasses. <laughs> I love you, Father. But that doesn't give me any backstage pass or special access to my heavenly Father. So so in the negative, Mary doesn't have special access as his earthly mom. But in the positive, she now, as a sinner like the rest of us, has access to the heavenly father and his son through her earthly son. But only by believing that he was the son of God. See, really, Jesus isn't ultimately distancing himself from Mary here. He is actually opening the door to a far more intimate relationship with his earthly mother, Imagine being more intimately related than a mom to her child. Than being in the womb of the person. This is what Jesus came to offer. And not just for her to be his earthly mother, but his eternal sister. For them to have one union, intimate relationship for the rest of eternity. What good news for us. What good news for us today. That in Christ is the most intimate access available to the Father The Trinity itself, and it's been said that in in the person of Christ, we as believers are now hidden in Him. There is nothing that you and I could do to, to grant us, to manipulate, to make our God love us or accept us any more or any less than He does right now in Jesus and forever. That's good news. What we need is not a new gadget, what we need is not a new location. We need a new relationship with the living God, and only Jesus could offer that. And how do we get that? Well, we need what Jesus offered next, a new cleansing, a new cleansing. Let's continue on here in verse 6. Now, six stone water jars had been set up there for Jewish purification, each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So if you do some quick math, there are six jars, 20 to 30 gallons. That's 120 to 180 gallons of water that could be put in these six jars. Remember at the time, they needed water on hand. They didn't have the modern day amenities of hoses and faucets. And it was like always camping, right? So you need, you need water close by and a lot of it. Now, these jars in particular, it says, was u- were used for purification, you remember they had a lot of cleansing rituals from the Old Testament, and even ones they had added on since then, but they were—they were, needed to be purified for everything. If you touched a dead corpse, you needed to wash up. If you were a leper, you were unclean. If you ate bacon, you pig, right? uh, bodily discharges, That's a fun section of Leviticus if you're looking for some family Devo time at dinner, (laughs) especially. Uh, Even at a wedding, all these regulations for ceremonial washing, they're washing the utensils, they're washing their hands. It was this constant process. And he says in verse 7, Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. Now, the water here likely represents the older order of Jewish law and custom. This is what Jesus came to replace Not to abolish, but that was what it was pointing to all along. This is, once again, we see the Old Testament shadows pointing us, pressing us toward the New Testament substance or reality of what Jesus came to bring. And this is what the Old Testament was designed to do all along. Jesus came to turn the water into wine. Now... To understand, put our Jewish Old Testament thinking caps on, when they heard wine, that it often represented this idea of, a, of joy and blessing, the blessing of life with Yahweh, their God, in, in the land. Here, we see the wine is running out, an indication of their spiritual barrenness. Remember, this is a people living in oppression to the Roman Empire, just the last of many uh, oppressive regimes that they had been under. They, because of their own sin and rebellion and unbelief, they, it led them to curse, right? It led them to no joy, to no life with God in the land of barrenness, in, indicated by no wine. But wine is often used by the prophets to point toward the Messiah's age that was to come and what he would bring to restore the joy and blessing of life of Yahweh. The wine would once again flow. I'll avoid the Dumb and Dumber reference to stay mature. But Jesus offers here a new and a better cleansing, one that is more lavish. 120 to 180 gallons of wine are about to be brought to this wedding. The Old Testament rituals could at best clean somebody outwardly and for for a temporary amount of time, right? They'd have to clean themselves again tomorrow or the next week or the next month. But what Jesus came to offer was a cleansing inwardly of us and one that would last forever, not have to be re-cleansed over and over again. And the main point of John here is that Jesus' wine was unqualifiedly superior, infinitely better than anything man could produce. We see that next. Look at verses 8 through 10. Then he said to the servants, now draw some water out. You fill them up, now draw the water out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after the people are drunk, the inferior. But you've kept the fine wine until now. So see, over the seven days of that wedding, the guest's taste became dulled after drinking so much wine. And so they usually would start with the good stuff, because by the end, what's the difference, right? But here, Jesus says, I've saved, they recognize, man, the best has been saved for last. Now, I want to pause here, because we're talking a lot about wine and talked about drunkenness here. Just a a moment to say, what does God's word say about alcohol? Now, we don't have time. This could be a six-week series in its own right. I want to briefly touch on this because this might be sending off some some signals in everybody's mind. Some have argued against any kind of consumption about of wine or alcohol. Uh, And they would say, well, in the Bible, any type of wine was just super diluted. It wasn't actually wine like we would think about today. Now, that is true. Often, it was a much more diluted version of wine than what we would drink today. But there was plenty of wine and other alcohol, Old Testament often calls it strong drink, that was imbibed, and it could lead to drunkenness. This was not just Welch's grape juice. We see this in verse 10, after they were drunk, right? Some people would overdo it. Now, God, in his word, never just straight up forbids the drinking of wine or or alcohol. In fact, we see in Psalm 104, it's a gift from God. Everything God made is good and can be received by thanksgiving. But the problem is, is we can take those gifts and we can abuse them. And that's what our Bibles speak out against. That this must be done in moderation it must be we must be under control so paul says be controlled by the holy spirit not by the wine that you put into your system and and, and it must be we're going to see that you we must do all things sober mindedly and when we're drunk we can't we can't do that so a word to the alcohol abuser abuse of god's good gifts are is sinful to be addicted to any of god's gifts is a form of idolatry and it, it leads to destruction, right? That's what's why God says don't go there. It's for our best. But we'll, we'll see in a moment. There's hope for those of us who have abused God's gifts, which is actually all of us. And I, I, it feels like a good place to put in here a plug for a, a ministry we have on Tuesdays called Celebrate Recovery. Um, this is Tuesday nights at 6.30, and this is a, a beautiful, it's a, it's a recovery program with Jesus in the middle of it, and not just, uh, for the record, alcohol and drugs. This would be somebody uh, dealing with pornography or food or relationships or, or really any, any, any disciple that wants to grow would benefit from Celebrate Recovery. Would, I would encourage you to check that out if the Lord leads you that way, but, but Paul also is going to talk about another form of abuse um, in, in Corinthians and other places where that can be causing others to stumble. That when we flaunt our freedom, that we'd say, no, the Bible says it's a good gift. But in love, right, love your neighbor, how how is this impacting the people around us? And if we have a relative or a friend who's an alcoholic, how are they going to respond if we're bringing this stuff out? Or or what if somebody else's conscience isn't where my conscience is? We err on the side of caution because the last thing we want to do is put up a hurdle in somebody's journey to Christ. But another word: to the alcohol Pharisee. There are some who would condemn other people for even spelling the word wine, let alone drinking it. It is sinful also to push our personal convictions on others as a universal standard. And there's a Celebrate Recovery for you too and your issues, right? It's for all of us. But notice here the act of love from Jesus toward the bridegroom. I don't want us to miss this. Remember, this bridegroom could have suffered public shame and even a lawsuit if the wine would have run out. So what does Jesus do? He spills out 180 gallons of wine to cover this man's shame and the potential debt. Just as one day we know he would spill his own blood to cover our shame and for the shame of the world. We often see blood associated with wine. Even Jesus in the Last Supper says, this wine, this is my blood. Right? Jesus came to purify in a far better way than those water jugs ever could. And just like with this man at this feast, he came to turn our shame into feasting. With that in mind, our author, he comes out and tells us the purpose of of his little story here. Verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. Now, this is a foretaste of his glory. There is more to come. but this little foretaste here was a sign. Now, signs in John, and we'll talk about more about this as we go, but they were more than just magic tricks to kind of wow everybody or just to, to impress everybody with some of his, his skills. These were significant, significant. They, they often, we would say it this way, they point beyond themselves to deeper realities that can only be seen by the eyes of faith. Their purpose, to quote the ancient poets, Ace of Base, I, I saw the sign, and it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. You hired a 90s baby. That's, <laughs> that's on you. The next, next week, we're going to see the complicated relationship of signs and faith in Jesus. But what we see here is this is echoing. Remember what John said? The purpose of this whole gospel is John chapter 20. I recorded these things so that you may believe in him as Messiah, and by believing in him, you may have life. And we see this whispered out here in this first sign. Now, who does it say? Look at verse 11. Look, who does it say that believed? He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed. The servant saw the drawing out of water, and it became wine. It says it was his disciples, those early followers of Jesus that put it together and let that sign lead to faith in Jesus. The outside of the servants, I think actually most of the people at the, at the wedding here didn't even know that a miracle had taken place. They were just pleasantly surprised that there was really good wine at the end of the week still. And similarly, man, Jesus came to die for the whole world, but only his true followers see his glory revealed in these signs in the word and let that sign lead us to belief in who he claimed to be and finding life through that belief. Jesus is slowly, this is a soft opening, right? He's slowly launching his public ministry here and only a few have eyes to see. Now last here, verse 12, after this, He went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and stayed there for only a few days. Now, this is a transition verse to the next story. In a lot of ways, we could see this as a throwaway line, but I don't want us to miss this. This right here is a sip of the new wine life that he came to bring. You see what it says here? He spent time with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And this is life, to be with Jesus to walk with Jesus, to talk with Jesus. And I just, I love meditating on these little moments in our story. Imagine what it is to spend time with our Lord and Savior, to to eat with him and to laugh with him and to cry with him. This is sweet, sweet wine. This, This after party from the wedding here is a foretaste of the wedding feast that's to come. Isaiah 25 talks about, points forward to it. Revelation 19 tells us the reality of it. But notice here, that Jesus came, he clarified his relationship with his mother Mary, but notice here, he set time apart for her and for his brothers, his family alongside of his disciples. And it makes me think that of the tension that we often feel with family and mission. That this is an easy, like, Jesus sent us out and says, "Go. this is what I want you to give your life to, is to go make disciples of me who go out and make other disciples of me. That's why we're here. But then we also have physical families, and I think we can go into either ditch, that there are ways that we can make ministry an idol, and we're, every time the church is open, we're involved, and we're doing good things, but we're neglecting our children, our spouse, our, our brothers and sisters, our parents, whatever it might be. We can also sway over into the other ditch and actually make family an idol and neglect the mission that we've been called to be on. We want to keep on the straight and narrow, and, and I would say one exhortation would be to go on mission As a family. But a lot more could be said about that one too. What does this story teach us for today? What what is this new relationship, the new cleansing that Jesus came to offer? What does this look like for us in 2023? Two things. A, Jesus is Lord of life. He is Lord of life. We see him clarifying his relationship with Mary. And, And in our new relationship to God through Jesus, we need to get straight who is the Lord in this relationship? Jesus is going to later clarify to his disciples, nobody comes to the Father but through me. But Jesus is not just Lord of our initial access point to the Father, but he's also Lord of how we live every aspect of this life. That Jesus is the Lord of my screen time. That Jesus is is, Lord of, of how I speak to my wife and to my boss. He's Lord of what I put into my mouth, what I put into my mind. And so let me ask you with the Holy Spirit there, Uh, to do the convicting, not me, but what area of your life is not currently being brought under the lordship of Christ? What's a current area, the way you're spending your time or your energy that you haven't even asked the question? I've been here. Like, I'm not even asking God what he wants, what his will is in this situation. This is an invitation to repentance, to change your mind and say, Lord, you are Lord of this too. What would you, what would be your will here? But also Jesus is savior of life, because maybe some of you are like, I get that he's Lord. Like, my problem is that I feel super unworthy to approach him at all. And maybe you come into this room this morning feeling too dirty, too unclean to approach our God. Look at me. Just like Jesus covered the shame of that out-of-wine bridegroom at the wedding, he has covered the shame of your sin forever. And just like those old jars, man, we can't clean ourselves I could dump 180 gallons of water on myself, and my heart is still unclean before my God. But what I can't do, Jesus came and did. Being Lord of our life doesn't mean that, oh, now Jesus just gets to boss us around or wrap us on the knuckles like the old schoolmaster when we cut out a line. It means he has rescued us from the old way that led to destruction. And he's come to lead us to the new way that leads to flourishing, that leads to life. A life even when it's marked by pain and suffering. A life that is marked by worship of our God, not of ourselves. A, a, a life that's marked by loving others before ourselves that oftentimes feels backward. That doesn't sound like life and we run and we hide. We to Trust that Jesus is inviting us to the path of a new and better wine. Jesus is going to define eternal life not as just getting to live forever. Every soul is going to do that, we believe. John 17, we look ahead, he says, this is eternal life. You want to know the eternal life I came to bring? That that they may know you, Father, the only true God, and the one whom you sent, me. True life, true life, joyful life. The wine-blessed life is life with Jesus and his Father. And just like his mother and brothers and disciples here at the end of the story, Jesus likes spending time with you. He wants to spend time with you. This is not just forced from his father because he's the savior. He loves you. He made you just like you are. And he wants to walk. He wants to redeem you, right? He wants to to help you grow. He's not going to leave you where you are, but he wants to walk this road. Do you truly believe that? The Messiah has come to bring the wine of life to our barren land. This is what he came to do. And I want us to just to, here at the end here, just to consider for a moment, if you would just close your eyes with me, just so we can zoom in, dial in our hearts here before the Lord. And, and maybe even, and if, if you want to just put your palms face up, and this is not, we're not getting any weir- anything weird, right? I'm not going to, but just as a, as a way to symbolize our surrender to him as Lord of life. And to receive him as the Savior of our lives. And I want, as we put our, ourselves in this posture before him, I want to read this beautiful prophecy from Amos 9. That the people were in a barren land, that, that because of their own sin and rebellion, that, that Yahweh's presence had been removed, and they, they knew nothing but pain and sorrow and toil. But Amos, God through Amos promises this day and maybe you're in this room and you're feeling that same barrenness, you're feeling that same dead-endedness of life, you're feeling that same hopelessness of life. But Jesus came here in John 2 to say the light is breaking into the dark, the new is breaking into the old, the wine is gonna flow in the land that is barren. I'm gonna receive these words from the Lord. The time will come, says the Lord. When the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can even be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I've given them, says the Lord your God. Father, we thank you that your light has broken into our darkness the light of life in Christ spilling out into the places that are dark and dead. My prayer this morning for us is that we would just receive you, believe the sign that we see here this morning in John, and believe that your cup of blessing, the wine of life, is the only thing worth being spilled into our cup, that we would declare you Lord of our life, cry out to you as Savior of our life, Lord, I know, I know my own heart, and I can't speak for anybody else here, but Lord, it's hard at times to believe that you're good and that you're gracious, and so I hide, and I self-protect, and I self-justify, and I try to do this thing my own way, and even though I see the destruction and disappointment it leads to over and over again, Lord, today I want to choose by your grace to once again receive freely who Jesus is and the good cup of blessing that he brings. As we sing these songs, Lord, would you conform our heart by your grace to believe that you are good and that you are gracious and you're a king worth serving and following. It's in the name of that king that all God's people said.